Romans chapter 9, beginning at verse 6 and reading down through the ninth verse. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. Amen and amen. Amen. The Apostle Paul teaches the doctrine of election here in Romans chapter 9. And this is how he does it. And the election is not being applied here to Philistines or Hittites or Americans. The election here is being applied to Israel, which was a horrible doctrine for them to hear. For them to hear that not all of Israel... Not every inhabitant of the nation, not every one that was an ethnic Israelite was an Israelite of God, was an heir of the promises, was an object of God's favor and approval. This was a hard doctrine. Can you imagine what it was like for them to read Galatians 4, 21 through 31 and to find out that God was comparing them and their city to Hagar, Ishmael, and Mount Sinai in Arabia? rather than Mount Zion in Jerusalem. This was a horrible doctrine, and so we have the Apostle Paul starting off with the first five verses, showing his tender regard for them in verses 1, 2, and 3, and then listing the benefits of being an Israelite in verses 4 and 5. When I say horrible, I mean horrible to the minds of a Jew that didn't understand. It's beautiful and wonderful to us, and I hope that we can see that beauty clearly in these verses. Very briefly, looking at what verse 6 and what we covered last Lord's Day. Not as though the Word of God hath taken none effect. We understand the Word of God here to be the Word of God to Abraham. The promises and the covenants made to Abraham. We make this choice because in the previous Verses, especially verse 4, the apostle has listed covenants and promises and fathers. Now the three fathers were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promises and covenants that were the greatest of all were given to Abraham. We further make this choice because as we look at verses 7 through 9, we see that Paul immediately takes up the promises made about a seed of Abraham that it was not found in Ishmael or the six sons of Keturah, but only in Isaac the son of Sarah. We see that in verse 9, it says, For this is the word of promise. And we connect that word of promise with the word of God in the first half of verse 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. So we're looking at God's word, God's promises made to Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 through 24. We further understand, for the basis of this decision, that the Jews took their greatest measure of comfort and security and had as their most sacred doctrine the fact that by natural connection to Abraham was the basis for their salvation. 
John, Jesus, and Paul had to deal with it repeatedly. We have Abraham to our father. Think not within yourselves that Abraham is your father. If ye were the children of Abraham, men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, throughout the New Testament, we can see the great emphasis that the Jews placed on their biological, reproductive, genealogical descent from Abraham. And so for those reasons, and some others, we make a choice that when it says the Word of God in the first half of verse 6, it is referring to God's Word to Abraham of great promises to him and to his seed, of defeating their enemies, of being more in number than the sand which is by the seashore, of all nations of the earth being blessed through them, and of them having as a perpetual inheritance a particular and extended lot of property in the Middle East. Great promises. We understand them spiritually just like Abraham did in their primary, primary application. We understand any natural application of them to have been conditional and lost by the Jews. C.I. Schofield and others would say that God made an an everlasting covenant with Abraham for that piece of sand at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. We are able to show that Abraham didn't consider that land to be the intent behind God's promises, but heaven. By the virtue of Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 16, we further know that from about 50 passages of Scripture, with 10 of them being jewels, that God did fulfill all His promises about the land to the descendants of Abraham. Especially in the days of David and Solomon. My favorite passage is in Nehemiah chapter 9, and I'm not going to turn you there, or this rabbit trail will extend itself deep into the forest, and we may get lost. But there in Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 7 and 8, Nehemiah blesses the Lord God and says that He is righteous on the basis of having fulfilled all the land promises that he made to Abraham. Now, in order to say that the land promises haven't been fulfilled, then you are accusing God of not being righteous. The Jews put so much stock in their relationship to Abraham for eternal life, and they believed that any descendant of Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, A true Israelite, a true Jew in their eyes and in their minds was eternally sure of heaven. They were righteous in the sight of God. God loved them and God approved of them because they were His people by having been born to among the descendants of Abraham. So the apostle says, not as though the word of God hath taken an effect. He has expressed great concern, great fear, great worry, great grief, great sorrow for something that he's about to explain in Romans chapter 9. And he explained that in the first three verses. That implies that there is danger or trouble for Israel. That implies that God has rejected some of the Israelites. And so, to their understanding, that would make God's promises to Abraham of no effect. To their understanding, God's promises to Abraham and his seed would have failed. Because even if one descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were to be rejected or lost, God's word was not true. 
And so Paul, immediately knowing that would be their objection, cuts it off with a a somewhat obscure sentence in the first half of verse 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. My concern for Israel is not for all of Israel. My concern for Israel is not contrary to the word of God to Abraham about him and his seed. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. Not as though God's word has not been fulfilled. Because it has been fulfilled. And here's the explanation. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. There are two Israels to be considered when you read through Romans 9 through 11. And for the truth of the matter, when you read the entire Bible. There are two Israels to be considered. There is the Israel of God. There is the elect Israel. There is the chosen Israel. There is the Israel of promise. There is the Israel that is the object of God's affection and God's covenants. And then there is simply fleshly, national, ethnic Israel. Two Israels. And as you read through Romans 9 through 11, whether you use spiritual and natural, or whether you use elect and natural, Don't use elect and ethnic because then you've got to write more letters. You might want to put an E or an N beside every Israel so that you do not get confused because there's at least two. In Romans 9 through 11, there's more than that in the rest of the Bible because sometimes we're referred to as Israel bringing Gentiles in. There are no Gentiles in Romans 9. He has not got, he's plainly told you that he's dealing with his kinsmen according to the flesh. He is not bringing Gentiles into the equation yet. He brings it in in other places like Galatians 4, 3, 6, which we read earlier this morning. Verse 6, Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect. It is not that God's promises have not been fulfilled. They have been fulfilled in the way that God intended them toward elect Jews, not toward national Jews toward only the Jews that God had chosen and elected and approved of and loved, not to the rest of the nation, which he considered merely fleshly descendants of Abraham. And we saw that in Galatians 4, 21 through 31, which I mention again as something that we read as preparatory material early or this morning, which showed that the inhabitants of Jerusalem And the city of Jerusalem itself were to be compared to Hagar and Ishmael and Mount Sinai and rejected. Because there is a different city of Jerusalem. And it's very real. You just haven't been there yet. Except in this extension of it. In this suburb of it. It's in heaven. And it's the mother of us all. And it's where all the free children and the children of the free woman. It's where all the ones that are like Isaac that are the called of God and the elect of God, will spend eternity. And the church is our connection to it as a suburb before we either die or the Lord Jesus Christ comes for us and takes us to the heavenly Jerusalem. There are two Israels. And so verse 6, as Paul enters into this doctrine that's going to be hard to receive for a Jew, explains... The word of God is still true. You have misunderstood it by applying it to every natural, fleshly descendant of Abraham. But they are not all God's Israel. 
that are national Israelites. Just because they have a birth certificate or an ID card in their wallets that say they are an Israelite does not make them of God's Israel. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel. There are two Israels. A national, fleshly descendant of Abraham that doesn't mean any more to God than Ishmael, other than in some carnal blessings given to them by being part of the greatest nation on earth. But there's another Israel, the elect Israel, like Isaac, which was distinguished from his seven brothers by God's favor and mercy toward him. There's two Israels. And that is the explanation, you Jews that might hear me and see my grief for Israel and know that no one else in Israel is grieving for Israel like I am because all of them are assuming that every Jew will be saved. Paul, as a Jew, is grieving in a way that they couldn't appreciate. But he's explaining, not as though God's word failed, because it is perfectly fulfilled in the Jews that matter to God, in the Israel that matters to God, the elect Israel. And that is verse 6. But while we are there, let's remember that this doctrine is not new. And I gave you some passages last Lord's Day, and I appreciate the enthusiasm by which they were received. But let me give you a couple more. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 37. Isaiah 37. A couple of references here to remind us that God had spoken about Israel and described a very small remnant within them much earlier than Romans 9. Isaiah chapter 37 and verse 31. What we're looking for here is references to a remnant within Israel. That there were two Israels even then in the mind of God. Verse 31 of Isaiah 37, And the remnant that has escaped of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go forth a remnant, and they that escape out of Mount Zion, the zeal of the Lord of hosts shall do this. Notice that God in His zeal would preserve and keep a remnant of the Jews, not the whole nation, so that it was not everyone born to Abraham that was that had the zeal of God to protect them. It was only a remnant, some leftovers of them, a few of them, a minority portion of them. But that minority portion of the house of Judah shall take root downward and bear fruit upward. They are going to grow again. It looked like Israel was over, but God had still preserved a nucleus from within them that were His people. Ezekiel chapter 6. Ezekiel, one of the other major prophets, as we call them, of the Old Testament, major because their books are long. Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 8. Ezekiel 6, 8. Yet will I leave a remnant, that ye may have some that shall escape the sword among the nations, when ye shall be scattered through the countries, and they that escape of you shall remember me among the nations whither they shall be carried captives, because I am broken with their whorish heart, which hath departed from me, and with their eyes, which go a-whoring after their idols. And they shall loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed in all their abominations. 
And they shall know that I am the Lord, and that I have not said in vain that I would do this evil unto them. Notice that there would be some Jews scattered throughout the worlds and the world in countries where God would scatter them, that God would give them an understanding to know that they were there for their sins. They were there because they offended God. And they are, and they would remember the words of the prophets that had told them that this would come to pass. But it was going to be only a remnant of that nation. Look at chapter 14 in the same book. Ezekiel 14. Ezekiel 14. This is the chapter where he lists some of those great men that had delivered Israel in the past. There are five great men that by their intercessory praying were able to deliver the entire nation. And he mentions them in the 14th verse, Noah, Daniel, and Job. And there's Moses and Samuel mentioned in Jeremiah 15. Here, it is Noah, Daniel, and Job. They're in verse 14. They're in verse 20. That even if those three men were to be brought back, or if those three men were to be living in Judah, and to be praying for the deliverance of Judah, that combined prayer meeting wouldn't be enough. Because he was going to judge them. Verse 21, For thus saith the Lord God, How much more when I send my four sore judgments upon Jerusalem, the sword, and the famine, and the noisome beast, and the pestilence, to cut off from it man and beast. Yet, behold, therein shall be left a remnant that shall be brought forth, both sons and daughters. Behold, they shall come forth unto you, and ye shall see their way and their doings, and ye shall be comforted concerning the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem, even concerning all that I have brought upon it. And they shall comfort you when ye see their ways and their doings, and ye shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, saith the Lord God. There would be a remnant that in their ways and their doings would be having the true religion of God and showing the true zeal for God. And they extended, they included Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah and the recovered band under Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest and the prophets Zechariah and Haggai. And they worshiped God and they rebuilt the temple. But while they looked at that small remnant and saw them, these are the real people of God and they are worshiping God the way He's supposed to be, they would know, you know, we had to spend 70 years in Babylon for good cause because we sinned against the Lord. There's, there's more, brethren, but I'm... Okay. Let's, let's try Joel. I'll give you one more. Joel. Daniel, Hosea, Joel. I'm going to pick Joel because this passage is quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost. Joel chapter 2. It's the last five verses, verses 28 through 32. Peter takes up in verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit. Does that sound familiar to you as what's in Acts chapter 2? As Peter explains what was taking place in the day of Pentecost with those men and women speaking in other languages. But I want verse 32. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. 
Remember on the day of Pentecost, Peter said, well, Luke wrote about Peter, and with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Well, if the generation was going to be lost and destroyed, and some were going to save themselves from them, it is obviously a remnant that was saved. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Isn't that also what Peter said in Acts chapter 2? These are the Old Testament passages that the Jews just blew over and did not appreciate that there was a regular distinction being made within the nation of God's chosen remnant and the rest. Back to Romans 9. Back to Romans 9. Oh Lord, help me to know what to say and what to leave out. The Apostle has already hinted at this matter in chapter 2. Look at Romans 2, and let me just remind you of verses that we're very familiar with, or many of us are, and all of us should be. Romans 2, 28 and 29. Romans 2, 28. For he is not a Jew. In God's estimation, this is not a Jew, which is a Jew outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. Even Ishmael was circumcised. He was a circumcised seed of Abraham. But he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. This is a work of God changing the heart of a man, and he is the true Jew. Now, in this particular passage, the emphasis is on Jews taking confidence in the fact that they were outward Jews. They had their foreskin circumcised off, and they were Jews by birth. But God is saying here through Paul in two verses to hint at this doctrine that that's not really a Jew in God's sight. And let's use the words of Romans 9, those are not whom God counts as Jews. Because the word count is used in Romans chapter 9, and we want to remember that. God counts some Jews as being Jews, and God counts some citizens of Israel as being Israelites, and God counts some Gentiles as being Israelites. And we want to count things the way God counts them. Right. Not the way dispensationalists count them, not the way John Hagee counts them, not the way we might count them in our ignorance, but the way God's Word counts them. Because of this distinction in the second half of verse 6, wherever you read about Israel, especially in Romans 9 through 11, you have to make a distinction. Is this national Israel or is this elect Israel? And if you need to put an E or an N beside Israel, then you go ahead and do that to help you out as you read through it. So that... When we get to Romans 10 and Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. We need to ask, is Paul praying for elect Israel that they might be saved to a knowledge of the truth of the gospel from their ignorance? Or is Paul praying for reprobate Israel that God has rejected? I hope the answer is clear enough without me explaining it until we get to Romans 10. When we get to Romans 11, and it says, And so all Israel shall be saved, is Paul talking about 
national Israel? Or is Paul talking about elect Israel? We have to make a decision. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel, and they never were. There was never a time when the entire nation was the chosen people of God. Without exception. We don't see that in the Bible. Let's get back to Romans chapter 9. That verse 6 in the second half is so important to us. Jesus has already made this distinction. When Jesus was in John chapter 8, and I hope you quizzers especially know what I'm talking about. In John chapter 8, they said, We be Abraham's children. We're never in bondage to any man. And Jesus denied them. He said, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. If you were truly Abraham's children, the way God measures Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham and you would believe on me. Ye are of your father, the devil. Now get the language. That is the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth speaking to the chosen people of God, as John Hagee and C.I. Schofield and others would have you believe. Ye are of your father, the devil. And he was just not telling them they were naughty Christians. He was telling them they had no inheritance with him. They were not God's people. Because he goes on in that same chapter to say in verse 47, He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Someone that is elect, justified, and born again of God hears God's words. You don't hear God's words because you are not elect, justified, and born again of God. You say, that's hard doctrine. What did they want to do to him in John 8? They wanted to kill him. Yes, it was hard doctrine for them. Look at Revelation chapter 2 to see that this was not the only time Jesus said such things about Jews that were not true Jews. Israelites that were not true Israelites. When I say true Israelites, I mean Israelites that God counts as Israelites. I mean elect Israelites. I mean Israelites of promise. Look at Revelation chapter 2 and verse 9. Why aren't these verses preached in premillennial pulpits? To the church and the angel of the church in Smyrna, Revelation 2.9, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Chapter 3 and verse 9. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, Revelation 3.9, Behold, I will make them of the synagogue of Satan, which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. Behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet and to know that I have loved thee. These were Gentiles. These seven churches of where? Asia. What was Asia then? A province of Rome that is now embodied by the nation of Turkey. These were Gentiles. And twice the Lord... Is it in the red writing in your Bible? See, I'm using an Oxford black letter edition. Is it in the red writing in your Bible that Jesus of Nazareth said there are a group of people that worship in synagogues and there's only one nation on earth that's ever worshipped in synagogues and there's only one group of people that would ever want to be called Jews that these people in synagogues who call themselves Jews 
are liars and their synagogue is the synagogue of Satan and I will show them that I have loved you Gentiles. That is where we stand in our doctrine. We don't care what C.I. Schofield says. Lord, thank you for the truth of your precious word. Look at John chapter 10. John chapter 10. The Jews here are opposing the Lord Jesus Christ after he healed the blind man in chapter 9, after he explained that he was the good shepherd and that their shepherds were nothing but hirelings and thieves and robbers. And they tell him, if you really want us to believe, then just tell us plainly, are you the Christ or not? Verse 24, Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believed not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Do you want that summarized for a shorter version? It's obvious. I've already told you, and I've proven it. I am the Christ. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. This is the doctrine of election within the nation of Israel, taught by Jesus in John chapter 10 about the Good Shepherd. Right there on the spot, He told them, God did not give you to me. God gave the sheep to me, and they hear my voice, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We are elaborating on the words, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. There are two Israels. So that means there's two kinds of Israelites. Do you want to meet one of those Israelites in John chapter 1? Do you already know his name, some of you that better know your Bibles? What is his name? Don't hurt me. Did I not word the question well enough? Who is the true Israelite in John chapter 1? Nathaniel. John chapter 1, verse 43, The day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathaniel, and saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile! Exclamation point. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. And so on and so forth. What we want is, behold, an Israelite indeed. There's two Israels. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Nathaniel was an elect Israelite. Nathaniel was a true Israelite. Nathaniel was an Israelite in the mind of God. You say, well, it was because he was without guile. If a man is without guile, it is by the work of the Holy Spirit. It is not by the work of Nathaniel nor his parents. God had already chosen Nathaniel. That was a fruit of the Spirit for him to be without guile. That was a blessing of divine grace. That was a blessing of regeneration. 
for him to be without guile. But notice, he's identified as an Israelite indeed. A true Israelite. A real Israelite. When Zacchaeus popped down under the tree in Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, and the crowd murmured because they knew that he had not been a very honest man in his collection of taxes for the Roman government, Zacchaeus confessed right there in the spot in front of them all, half my goods I sell and give to the poor right now, and if I've wronged any man, I'll restore it fourfold. And Jesus said today, salvation has come to this house, in that he also is a son of Abraham. Amen. What in the world was he saying? He was standing in the midst of 10,000 Jews. Oh, it's so it's so interesting to read the Bible and remember Romans 9, 6b. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. Zacchaeus was a true Israelite. Zacchaeus was a son of promise. There's so many that want to talk about Israel. And I mentioned this last Lord's Day. I do know when I repeat that eventually will go away, that, that checking mechanism in my mind. But I do know when I repeat. There are many that want to talk about Israel, but your question should be, what Israel are you talking about? And then take them to Romans 9, 6b. There's many that want to talk about Jerusalem, like pray for the peace of Jerusalem out of Psalm 122. And you need to ask them, what Jerusalem do you want me to pray for? And if they say, well, there's only one. It's over there in the Middle East. It's the city of the great king. Well, then you take them to Galatians 4, 21 through 31 and show, oh no, Paul said there were two Jerusalems. Which one do you want to be part of? The one rejected or the one in heaven that's the mother of us all? Brother, welcome. It's wonderful. Brother John and I and a bunch of us used to be in the same ignorance about Jerusalem and about Israel and about the Jews. And it's such a blessing to learn and know the truth. Much more could be said on that subject, but let's not chase C.I. Schofield and the New King James Version and all these dispensationalists down anymore. Let's go on to verse 7. Romans chapter 9. I must interject here, though. Just because we know the truth about this matter of they are not all Israel which are of Israel, that doesn't make us of the Israel of God. Oh, I appreciate that. That some in here recognize that. The knowledge of this doctrine does no more to make us the true Israel of God than to have a birth certificate from Abraham made them the true Israel of God. I'm not going to go to Romans 9 yet. I want you to come back to Matthew chapter 22. I must interject this or I would not be a faithful minister of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because this is what Jesus Christ taught. And I mentioned this last Lord's Day. I mentioned this at the very end of the first assembly. But I want you to read it with me. And I'm going to read it quickly. I'm going to read 14 verses. The first seven are going to be about God sending His prophets and His Son to Israel. The next seven verses are going to be about God sending His apostles and the ones they ordained to the Gentiles. And then comes the day of judgment. After the church has gathered in many Gentiles, not all of which 
are the Israel of God. But worded here differently. Follow with me. These are, I want you to learn the Bible. Matthew 22, verse 1. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king, which made a marriage for his son, and sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. They would not come. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. And the remnant took his servants, and entreated them spitefully, and slew them. But when the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. To that point, you should clearly be able to understand God sending his prophets, including John the Baptist, and including the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, inviting the Jews, because the gospel was sent to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles, to the marriage, the gospel, celebration, in the church and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they made light of it. They did not know the time of their visitation, and so God sent the armies of the Romans and burned up their cities and destroyed those murderers. Okay, easy, easy, easy. This is not the end of time. This is 2,000 years ago. Now verse 8, Gentiles. Then, after the destruction of Jerusalem, then saith he to his servants, the wedding is ready. But they which were bidden, that is the Jews, were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find bid to the marriage. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. And when the king came in to see the guests, he saw there a man which had not on a wedding garment. And he saith unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then said the king to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. When the apostles and the ministers that they ordained, the prophets and evangelists of the New Testament, went out into the highways and hedges of the Gentile world, and gathered them in by the invitation of the gospel, good and bad came in. There were tares and there were wheat. And when the king in the great day of judgment, and he does it before the great day of judgment by entering his churches as well, because David would pray to deliver us from strange children. But in the great day of judgment, every guest will be examined. And the king is going to say, where is your wedding garment? And the wedding garment is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is what makes him acceptable in the presence of the king. And this man does not have it. And he has no explanation because he doesn't understand, nor does he have any part in it. And brethren, because we understand the doctrine of Jews and Gentiles, and that they are not all Israel which are of Israel, does not put a wedding garment on you. Only God's electing grace can put a wedding garment on you, and it is your duty and my duty to give all diligence 
to the matter of making our calling and election sure. For many are called, but few are chosen. That is, many are called, but few are elect. Many get into the churches of Jesus Christ, but few are in the book of life. And so we need to make our calling and election sure. Back to Romans chapter 9. I had to put that in there to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because here we are, a Gentile church, we've been gathered in, and there's a tendency on our part to be high-minded and haughty that we understand this doctrine, and we've been given a place of precedence and preeminence even over the Jews. But without the grace of God, we're going to be bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness. Neither. Because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children? Now the apostle has just said there is an election within Israel, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel. There is an election within the nation of Israel, so that there is an elect Israel that is a smaller group than national Israel. And he said that, now he's going to illustrate it with Moses' children, with, with Abraham's children, excuse me, with Abraham's children, then he's going to illustrate it with Isaac's children, then he's going to illustrate it with Pharaoh. Then he's going to prove it by the sovereignty of God. Then he's going to prove it by the scriptures of the Jews. That there is an election within Israel. Because this was hard for them to hear. Hard for them to bear. Neither. I've given you one doctrine. Let me explanify it by pointing out something from your historical records in the word of God. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. Now, my brethren, do you love the Word of God? Do you know that in this verse 7 that I'm trying to read to you, but I can't get through all the way, that God is going to use the word seed in two different ways and the word children in two different ways in one verse? Neither because they are the seed of Abraham. They are, plural, are the seed of Abraham. Are they all children? But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh... These are not the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Verse 7, Neither, in addition to my basic statement that there is an election within Israel, there is also an election within the descendants of Abraham, his immediate children. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham. How many did Abraham have that were his seed? Eight. Eight sons of Abraham. And they were all called his seed. If you can hold your hand there at Romans chapter 9, look over at Genesis 21. Every year that I get older, and every year I spend reading and studying God's Word, I appreciate 2 Timothy 2.15 more and more, and more. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Modern translations of the Bible can't even tell you to rightly divide the word of truth in 2 Timothy 2.15 because they alter that that clause in that verse. They don't tell you to divide it. We have to make constant division because God uses the same word for different things at different times. We have put a great deal of emphasis on Abraham and his seed being Christ. Well, Abraham's seed was Isaac. 
But Abraham's seed was also Ishmael. Genesis 21, verse 12, God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. And all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation because he is thy seed. Hello? Moses, would you come again, please? Who is the seed of Abraham? Oh, what sense are you talking about? Do you mean just a physical descendant? Do you mean just a child, a bare natural child of Abraham? That Ishmael was one. But if you're talking about the one that is counted for the seed in God's sight, only Isaac. And so, and so we must rightly divide between Israel and Israel in Romans 9, and between seed and seed, and between children and children. Let's go back to Romans 9, 7. Neither. Because they are the natural seed of Abraham, are they all spiritual children? Or let's word it differently. Because they are all, because, neither because they are the fleshly seed of Abraham, are they all God's elect children? But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Only the one coming through Sarah, only Isaac was God's chosen seed, the seed of promise. The rest were called seed, as they are right here in this seventh verse, but they're just seed in a fleshly way, while Isaac was a seed in a spiritual way, in an elect way, in a family. Abraham held every one of these eight tots on his knee. Abraham watched every one of them ride a bicycle for the first time. Abraham watched every one of them do their first homework. Abraham watched every one of them play in a football team. I just speak of... Examples of Abraham with these eight sons of his, but only one was the Son of God. Only one was God's Son, even though Abraham was the friend of God. Because verse 8 tells us what is under consideration here, and this is not national blessing or national privilege. This is the children of God, because that is what Paul is concerned with in Romans chapter 9. Because he is going to describe in verses 22 through 24 that God makes vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor, vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. And in verse 8, we are specifically told, these are not the children of God. They are the children of Abraham and Hagar, and they are the children of Abraham and Keturah, but they're not the children of God. Neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, are they all children. Just because Abraham was their biological father did not make them the children of God. But in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is the child of God. That is God's elect person coming through that family. Now I want to tell you this doctrine is so hard, the doctrine of election, that God would create a race called human beings, 90 billion of which have lived in the history of the world, and He has elected and chosen to save only some of them. Some few of them. It's a hard doctrine. But if we understand our situation right as rebels against an infinitely holy God, we should gladly confess that it is pure mercy that He would have saved any of us. Because if God were fair, if God were just holy, if God were merely righteous, if that was all God was, no one would be saved. No one should be saved. 
It is not according to holiness for anybody to be saved. It is not according to righteousness for anyone to be saved. It is not according to justice that a single one of us should be saved. It is by pure grace and mercy of an infinitely holy and righteous God that He would devise a substitute of His only begotten Son to save any of us. So when you think about Abraham with his eight sons and going to eight different sets of football games and getting eight different bicycles from Toys R Us for his sons, only one was the Son of God. But that was still grace and mercy to it all. Because there shouldn't have been any. Abraham should have been left in Ur of the Chaldees worshiping idols with his parents. But he wasn't. He was called out of Ur of the Chaldees by the God of heaven. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham. Because Abraham was their father doesn't make them God's children because there were eight that had Abraham as their father, but only one was God's child. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. God said that back there in Genesis. That is, here's the Holy Spirit wanting to explain this doctrine to us. They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God. Just because there's a fleshly relationship to... Do you, do you know this is getting real personal to Jews right about now? Just because there is a fleshly relationship to Abraham does not make you a child of God. You have put all your stock in a fleshly relationship with Abraham. You have no more right to claim to be a child of God than did Ishmael or the six sons of Keturah. Right. Is what's being said here by the apostle. That is, they which are the children of the flesh... Those that just have a biological relationship to Abraham, these are not the children of God. That does not make them anything special. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. God made a promise to Abraham that through Sarah would come the son that was to be the promised seed to whom, through whom, and in whom all the blessings given to Abraham were to be transmitted all the way down to Christ and you and me. One of those sons. We have a brother, a father, let's call him a father, that we're going to meet when we're in heaven, and his name is Isaac. He is the son of promise. And we have a father that we're going to meet in heaven because heaven is named after him. Abraham's bosom. Because Abraham sought for that heavenly country where he is now in his spirit. Because God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham in the present tense. Abraham is there in that heavenly country with a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And they are our fathers. And God's blessing of election came down through them to us. Verse 8, They which are the children of the flesh, Ishmael, generated by Abraham in Hagar's womb. Six sons of Keturah, Genesis chapter 25, generated by Abraham in the womb of Keturah. These are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. And children here is used in the plural because it's extending beyond Isaac to Jacob to Joseph and to many others, including you and me. Even descendants of Esau are included in it because in Amos chapter 8, verse... In Amos chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, quoted by James in Acts chapter 15, verses 14 through 18, the Edomites are included 
upon whom my name is called. God, the Lord of hosts, would bring some even out of Esau's descendants, though he hated Esau. The string of election runs through families that cannot trace themselves back through. Jacob, you better be thankful for what I'm saying right now. Election includes those that cannot trace themselves back through Joseph, Jacob, Isaac, and Abraham. Praise His glorious name. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. It was Genesis 15 that God promised Abraham someone would come out of his own bowels and he would not have to give everything he had to Eliezer, a slave out of Damascus of Syria. Genesis chapter 16, Sarah gets impatient and comes up with an idea to create this son. Abram, why don't you go into my handmaid Hagar and we'll count her children my children. Genesis chapter 17, God tells Abraham, you're going to have a son by Sarah. He laughs and doesn't believe, but he gets over it. Genesis chapter 18, God tells Abraham again, and Sarah hears this time because she's in the tent and she laughs. But she gets over it because Hebrews chapter 11 tells us they both got over it. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord lets us get over some things sometimes when we're, when we show our weakness. I love the Lord because He's so merciful and long-suffering toward me. And I'm glad He gives examples like that in the Bible. In the 85th year of Abraham's life, he went into Hagar. Ishmael was born in his 86th year. In his 100th year, meaning there was 14 years difference between them, Isaac was born. When Isaac was weaned, and the calculations by Bible chronology indicate that that weaning, that celebration took place in the fifth year of Isaac's life. Ishmael made fun of Isaac. He was then a 19-year-old boy making fun of a 5-year-old boy who was having lavished upon him considerable attention by his father. But I want you to know something. Ishmael knew that Abraham loved him. And God, through it, Ishmael and his mother Hagar out so that there would be no competition. Sarah was the one that made the choice by the inspiration of God and God said, do whatever Sarah has said, get rid of them both. I'll take care of them. Don't you worry about it because it is in Isaac that thy seed shall be called. It is not Ishmael. Sarah dies in the 127th year of her life, which was the 137th year of his life. Abraham lived another 38 years beyond the death of Sarah to the age of 175. He married a woman, Keturah, had six sons by her. When they became of age and before he died, he gave them some token gifts, bought them each a Corvette, and sent them into Assyria, Iraq, and Afghanistan to get them far away from his son Isaac, to whom he gave everything. The mess that Sarah caused. Let me share a few things with you before we leave this passage for the moment. I hope that you're able to understand those verses very clearly. They all stem from what Paul said in the second half of 6. They are not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither, and then he brings it right down to the original children of Abraham, neither, because they are the seed of Abraham, Ishmael, Isaac, and six sons of Keturah. I haven't memorized those six names yet. I don't know that it's worth the mental space. 
Are they all children? Not that anything in the Word of God is not important. I just haven't done it yet. In Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, just because they have a flesh relationship to Abraham does not make them the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. God only counts the ones that he promised, the ones that he promised by electing grace as his children. Not, not this nation that claims this fleshly relationship to Abraham, but the ones that God has chosen. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. In Genesis chapter 17, God said to Abraham, At this set time next year, you will have a son. In Genesis chapter 18, He told Abraham with Sarah's hearing, In the time of life, we're three months later, In the time of life, Sarah shall have a son. What is the time of life? Nine months of human gestation. That's how those expressions go together there in 17 and 18 of Genesis. In Galatians chapter 4, the apostle gives us a little bit of leave to consider the fact that Ishmael and Isaac present to us an allegory. They are a word picture of God rejecting some and receiving others. God rejecting the Jews of Paul's day, and receiving only a remnant of that nation. And we're able to look at that and see the horror of one of the sons of Abraham mocking the other son of Abraham that was the true seed. And that's all brought out in that allegory. I just want to let you think about a few things as we think about the mess that Sarah made and that Abraham made with her by going into Hagar while Sarah sat outside and crocheted and Abraham as Job would put it, was in there bowing down on Hagar and bringing forth Ishmael. And she remained his wife for another 19 years. The ideas generated by modern evangelistic thinking for saving the lost are as perverse and worldly as Abraham sleeping with Hagar's handmaid while she sits outside and crocheted. Their ideas of how they get people into heaven and how they get people saved with their invitational system and reward system and point system and the pressure that they put on people to make a momentary decision for regeneration is creating children of the flesh, but not children of God. Second, the results stink. For carnal means of modern Christians cannot regenerate any. As the results of Finney's preaching, Graham's crusades, youth rallies, etc. all show which is identical to the rejected fruit of Hagar's and Keturah's wombs, producing nothing spiritual. First of all, the ideas are perverse. Second of all, the results fail. Third, the numerous results, seeming so effortless and efficient, lead to arrogant despite and persecution of the truth and its followers, just like Hagar and Ishmael. The first time... It seems like it. As soon as Abraham went in and slept with Hagar, she conceived. And listen, every Sunday, these false pulpits that preach their false religion, guess what? They get salvations by the dozens and by the hundreds because all it is is somebody mouthing some little sinner's prayer and there's no evidence of regeneration and true spiritual life having been given by the power of the Spirit of God. It Listen, Sarah was 65 years old when Abraham first heard about his seed. She did not give birth to to Isaac until she was 90 years of old after menopause. That's how difficult it is to have a promised son. 
25 years later after menopause because it's all by the power of God. Fourth, even Abraham and Sarah, the ministers of God in this particular case, were impotent to help. What did they do to bring Isaac into this world? God had to create Isaac. Sarah wasn't fertile. And Abraham wasn't potent. They were both dead reproductively. It was all of God. There's no minister that can create a child of promise. Only God can create a child of promise by the power of the Holy Ghost regenerating them. Fifth, we trust God's power and God's promises without question to produce God's sons. We believe that there is an elect throughout the world and that God will do it by His power. Sixth, though nearly foolish to suggest, Isaac could not help himself at all become a child of God, could he? And yet today, it is by the will of the flesh and by the will of man that men become children of God. But Isaac couldn't help himself become the promised seed. He wasn't even conceived yet in his mother's womb. Seventh, as this one was thought up by a woman, so have women corrupted much truth today in this effeminate day of the perilous times of the last days when Paul would say, these false teachers creep into houses and lead captive Silly women, like a Sarah, thinking of something so silly and ridiculous as creating God's promised seed through her Egyptian bondservant. If you think I went too far in those few thoughts for your mind, just remember the allegory of Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31, which gives us leave because we, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. And as then, the children of the flesh made fun of the children of pro- the child of promise, even so it is today, that they, with their false means of creating fleshly children, make fun of a religion that is based entirely upon the work of God without human means. In fact, if we follow our brother Paul, we dumb down the message to make sure the power is all of God. First right. Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Brethren, there is election in Israel. Always remember there's at least two Israels. There's more, but there's two here. The elect Israel and the national Israel. And when you read about Jews, when you read about Israelites, when you read about Jerusalem, when you read about Zion, when you read about the kingdom of God, when you read about the tabernacle of David, be expecting that possibly on Wednesday evening. In Acts chapter 15, the tabernacle of David is made up of God's elect among the Jews and the Gentiles, which makes a third Israel. It's called the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16. It's you and me, along with Abraham, Paul, and other elect saved Jews. May God bless His Word to your hearts. May we love the God who elected and chose us. And may we love the God who made promise before the world began that we would be given eternal life and we would be called the seed of Abraham and the children of God. Amen. Amen.